I was in Moscow, there were, weren't really taxis and I didn't realise that if you sat in the front seat that was, this is how I'm going to be paying with my body. And then this driver just automatically thought, okay, this is this is it. And so drove speeding really fast towards the forests. It ended up in quite a physical altercation where I said, no, this is not happening to me today. So I just fought with every ounce of my strength. I just managed to escape. What I do in my day is like, yeah, literally it's a dream job. The people I get to hang out with and, you know, I always say I don't make sick people normal. I make normal people better and better people even better. If you've got imposter syndrome plus bravery, that's an awesome combination. It's imposter syndrome plus being immobilized or shying away from the hard things. That's not good. Optimise performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Dr. Gemma King has a PhD in human behaviour and is an emotional intelligence and performance under stress expert. Gemma is research fellow at the University of Queensland School of Psychology and she is the founder of Biopsychanalytics, an Australian-based company that has developed scientifically validated methodologies to manage stress, reduce burnout and improve behavioural outcomes in high-performing environments. Gemma has a long list of companies she works with, including the Australian Defence Force, Special Operations Command, the Centre for Australian Army Leadership, the Australian Olympic Swim Team, Australian Government Solicitors, the Australian Institute of Sport, and she works as a specialist external advisor to McKinsey and Company. Gemma, I've got so many questions. How do you manage that without falling in a heap? Because you're also mother of three teenage children. You live in beautiful Queensland. You have been a stunt double in a movie. You've managed a nightclub in Moscow during the fall of the communist regime and you've lived around the world in (laughs) Korea, Europe and Canada. Gemma King, welcome to the podcast and those tidbits about you are fantastic. (laughs) It's so lovely to see you. Last time I saw you in person was at the PwC Outside. So... It yeah, was, really good yeah, and that was the first time we'd all come out of COVID in lockdown when we're doing Zoom meetings and yeah, teams. So anxious. Can you remember the first <laughs> one we did? And shout out to Lawrence from PwC. Hello, big fella. And when we were there on the stage and you had 800 people who'd come from around Australia and New Zealand in a room, the energy was just contagious. Yeah, it was, it was something else. And I, yeah, I was just so amazed at how well that that outside went. There could have been so many things that went wrong and it was just, I thought, seamless. It was a... Fantastic experience. It was a phenomenal experience. I'm excited that we're catching up. And yes. uh, Luba, who helps me with research, and I have gone deep on you. So I feel oh. like I've been in your shoes. I was so I like I was so impressed. There was things that I couldn't even remember saying. <laughs> you found I'm like, yeah. So I really do appreciate the hard work that's gone into this. Um, you know, I've done lots of podcasts, but I've never seen the level of preparation like this. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I will pass that on to Luba. And there were some some tidbits that really helped for this interview. And I went, oh, wow, because I, I obviously knew you as the performer, but I wanted mm-hmm. to know you. So, yeah, it was fascinating. Before I get into the rough running shit I've got today, for people who don't know you or haven't seen you, tell us an average week. And I'm, I'm curious as well, because you and I operate in similar worlds. Like we both work okay. in sport 
in military uh, and also in corporate. And in fact, I had a leader at Commonwealth Bank. I won't say his name, but if he does listen to this podcast, I'll send him a, a version. He said when I worked with their executive team not long ago, he said, you're sort of like a, a male version of Gemma King, but she's a bit more intelligent and heaps better looking. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Being compared oh. to Gemma King was a nice thing. What's an average week look like for you? I have no average weeks whatsoever. So I'll just tell you, say, for instance, this week um, I had I spent the weekend with a whole lot of guys from Defence, really good, and their families, so I'm still sort of part of that fraternity. Then I had a racing car driver come over for some mental performance, and then um, I spent a day with Coca-Cola on their factory floor talking to all the workers. I'm about to go to Sydney and go and do a um, presentation for some tech people. Then I'm spending um, some more days on an offsite with Coca-Cola. And then I've got a week next week with an investment firm. Yeah. And in between that, there's a couple of um, catch-ups with, you know, a swimmer and yeah, just, yeah, it's, there's no regular routine. And that's in some ways, you know, problematic if you want to get go to the gym and and get, you know, your diet in order and and sleep in order. But on the other hand, I could not stand doing the same thing every week. I'd go literally mad. Well, the person that teaches high performers how to perform under pressure, if she doesn't put herself in the crucible and put the blowtorch on you and your life, people are going to say you're full of it and there's a shh in front of it. But it's a, it's a balance, isn't it? And for people listening to this, I know no, we have- My partner always says, I'm calling you out and letting everyone know you're a fraud. Well, I'm not going to let ever your partner, Matt, sit with my partner, Tony, because she will say, oh, you know, he did this like, Tony, shh, we're at a corporate event. No, they don't need to know that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So rough overview, your backstory number one, two, performing under pressure. So let's go to the backstory. Do you want to start with stunt double? Like when we looked at <laughs> researching you, there was no way I thought Gemma King, stunt double would be in the same sentence. Well, it was like when I think about my life journey, it's like literally full of serendipity and sort of blind like and maybe just stumbling into these bizarre environments and so my career as a stunt double I think it literally lasted four days <laughs> and it was very unplanned I was in Moscow but the the way I got there was um I think growing up my parents were very much uh go out and experience life and the more unusual and the more sort of dangerous the activity I was doing the more positive reinforcement I got from my parents especially you know from my dad so he was what I'd describe as a high octane bipolar alcoholic. <laughs> he was. I'm just trying uh, to process that a high octane <laughs> bipolar alcoholic. Wow, it's fascinating. But, um, quite a success, still alive. I'm um, quite a successful hotelier, and so you know, I honestly think he just encouraged risk taking so he could, you know, tell his drinking buddies, guess what my daughter's doing. <laughs> so how I got to Moscow to be a stunt double, I was I'd finished school. And I was like, I, you know, I was studying um, science at university and I was like, I really want to just want to go overseas by myself. And so I said to my parents, um, I'm going overseas. They said, no, stay and finish your degree. And I said, no, I'm buying my own ticket. So I was going to Italy. And so I bought the, the cheapest ticket I could find. So at that time it was an Aeroflot ticket. And so I got on this plane and, you know, the seat was loose Pretty much everyone who worked on the plane was drunk, everyone smoking cigarettes, and it was just like a terrifying experience. And so I had a girlfriend from school whose parents were in the Australian embassy over in Moscow, and so she said, oh, come and stay with me. And I ended up actually staying there for nearly two years 
And back then, you know, Moscow was really, it was pretty dreary and miserable for like an Aussie chick. And and no one really spoke English and I didn't speak Russian at all. Um, Did you I'm learn like, Russian in the two years? I had to because if I didn't, um, I would have probably starved and, and it would never have gotten around. So I, you know, I learned it because I got a job working for a Russian-Irish joint venture and they were sort of tasked at bringing you know, Western society to Moscow. And so I consulted to this company and that involved um, setting up a Chinese restaurant. Um, they were setting up clothes stores and supermarkets. And then I got the job as manager of this nightclub. <laughs> and so while I was there, like I, I literally only been there a couple of weeks and then the Black Act, I think it was called Black October coup happened. And this is when the city went into like up, you know, absolute chaos because it was the last communist uprising. And so being an Aussie, I was over there going, this is crazy. So people were running around shooting in the streets. And I don't know if anyone was old enough to remember, this is when Yeltsin stood up on the tank and he shot at the White House. And so the compound that we were staying in, the embassy compound was literally like metres away. So I'm hanging out the window watching Yeltsin just blow the, this, um, the, the White House. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, like really dumb. I was thinking, this is like nothing. There was bullets just whizzing around. People, you could hear mortars and gunshots. And there was quite a lot of people killed. And I remember my, I was there with my girlfriend and, and there was another girl from school was visiting as well. And they said, look, we better call our parents um, because they're probably very worried about, about, you know, our safety. And so my girlfriend she rings up her mum and dad and they are like hysterical saying, get out of there, get on the first plane, you're going to die. You know, she's crying, they're crying, you know, utter hysteria. And of course you couldn't get out of there. There was a state of emergency. Everything was locked down. And then so I ring up my parents and I said, mum, guess what? You know, there's a war, I can see Yeltsin and you could hear, you know, the mortars. And then there was this sort of silence. And then my mum said, Oh my God, you are so lucky. You're witnessing history. Oh, just savor every moment, darling. Like, and I was thinking, wow, yeah. <laughs> this, you know, such a diametrically opposed response to my girlfriend. And I think that kind of set me up for uh, seeing stress, I suppose, in a different way. And, you know, I became very fascinated with, with stress. And living in Moscow was very, very stressful. Um, it was full of mafia. It was like, you know, it was utter chaos at the time. There was, you know, the whole collapse of, of society, of the police force, the military. So it was very dangerous. But one thing um, that, you know, happened, I was at the Irish pub and met these producers of Police Academy 7 and they were like, oh, we need someone who's you know, knows how to act in front of a camera. Can you, do you? And I'm like, yeah, sure, of course, had no idea. <laughs> And I said, we're looking for a stunt double for Callahan. That's the one with the, the big boobs and the blonde hair. And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And so, I, honestly, I was nearly killed. I had to fight the mafia, pull out some kung fu moves. I got dragged into this little car and then we went careering towards the Moscow River. Went, and then off we had to keep doing that. And, of course, the brakes were failing, no seat belts, no safety. And I think I got the equivalent of, like, Eight US dollars. <laughs> so it didn't inspire you to go from four days to four years to go and be a global stunt double, be jumping out of planes next to Tom Cruise. No, it was it was um, thankless. You know, low paid and um, 
and not a very fun job, honestly. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get on to this week's guest. I didn't see Police Academy 7. I think I tapped out at four or five. So was Michael oh. Winslow still in seven doing all of yeah. his great noises? I didn't even watch it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there you go. So poor old Callahan. Now, I just want to go back to what you said at the start was fascinating about your father. So I'm trying to look at that family of origin. It's fascinating. You know this when you do a podcast or a chat. You, yeah. you know someone. So I, I know you're street. Gemma, presenting and what I see on the internet. But yeah, that's fascinating. So if you've got a mum who is, darling, that's wonderful, while most mums would be stressing out, get the hell out of here, wonderful opportunity for you to learn, embrace and grow. And you know, under pressure, we get our biggest growth. But you've got your dad who is a high-performing alcoholic. So let's go with your dad first. What, what did that teach you or what frameworks did that give you? He really was everything you probably, <laughs> to be honest, wouldn't want to be you know he was very much about being suspicious um low trust see what you can get where my mother on the other hand was so generous and gracious and and uh a, a person of absolute service and would you know do anything for you to the honestly often to her own detriment and so i had this very interesting dipole of where i had this glorious, you know, upstanding, amazing woman that you probably could never be as good as her. And on the other side, a pretty dark individual who was actually very successful and, you know, earned probably 10 times what my mother did. But I imagine, you know, when it comes to their funerals, we'll know who's going to be packed to the rafters and who's won't. And I still talk to my father. He doesn't listen to this podcast, obviously. But I think learning... Um, that there are people in the world that think very differently from you and will try and get what they can get and that they are avaricious and that don't have a generosity of spirit. And I think that did really set me up well for business. <laughs> he also treated me like a tomboy. So I wasn't some little, you know, precious girl who wasn't allowed to, you know, get dirty or, you know, I was expected to do, we had a farm, do boys work, dig holes, drive tractors, you know, shoot a gun, you know, there was no you know, compensation for being a female. So I think that was also very helpful. Uh, and, and I really understood, you know, male psychology because of that, um, which I think held me in good stead later. I certainly know how to swear like a Siberian salt miner. I'm not offended by <laughs> bad language. In fact, I've got the worst <laughs> gutter mouth on me myself. So I think when you're dealing in... Um, sort of male-dominated environments. I, I really think my childhood was, you know, advantageous in that regard. It's fascinating. And when you look at family of origin, a lot of researchers say we can approach or avoid. So you could approach the behaviour like your father or you could approach your mother or you could mm -hmm. avoid either. So it's obviously subconsciously you took some strengths from both and that's really the start of the pathway to where you got to. You never know that as a kid, right? No, you don't. Like it... it you really instilled a, a huge um, injection of toughness, I think, resilience, so emotional resilience. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been told, you know, negative things growing up from one side and by positive on the other side. So I had 
I had built a very strong core of, I suppose, self-esteem from my mother and undying unconditional love where my dad would knock me down. So there was like, you know, be humble, be don't be a show off, um, have humility. Otherwise, you know, you'd cop it. So I think that was a really interesting combination. And yeah, I, I'm very grateful for it, actually. So you stopped pretending you were Callahan driving dodgy cars around Russia. <laughs> Yeltsin stopped shooting at the White House. What happened after that? What was the next uh, next steps in your journey to high performance? I it got, it got very dangerous in Moscow. I had quite a few incidences where I think my life was very much um, at stake. I was threatened, kidnapped. You had to move apartments nine times, so I, I thought, this is it. So then I ended up moving. Whoa, 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 Paul, Paul, Paul. <laughs> I, was, I was kidnapped and you just go to the next thing. Are we like, you're smiling as you say it. So have yeah, you got permission to, to, to talk about that or can you tell us a little bit about that experience? I was in Moscow when I was there. There were, weren't really taxis. You sort of just stood out into the street and, you know, pulled someone over and then gave them some rubles. And I didn't realise that at that time, you know, when there wasn't a lot of um, currency around, females would sit in the front seat if they had to get into work or get into wherever they were going. And of course, that you know what that meant. If you sat in the front seat, that was this is how I'm going to be paying with my body. I had no idea, so I sat in the front seat, and then this driver just automatically thought, okay, this is this is it, and so started driving off towards somewhere, and then started to you know touch me and put his hand up my skirt. And as we we're driving, I'm just looking at him, and I, of course, as you do when you move to a country, you learn all the swear words first. So I would just let it go. <laughs> And then he just sort of looked at me with that, you know, absolute like disdain, you, you know, you foreign girl, who do you think you are in my country? So he just drove speed, um, speeding really fast towards the um, forests. And then it ended up in quite a physical altercation where I said, no, this is not happening to me today. Not, no, I'm not, I'm not letting this man change the trajectory of my life. So I just fought with every ounce of my strength. And, um, you know, cracked him in the throat and then got out of the car. You know, he pulled my hair back and I, I don't know. So it was all just very quick. I just managed to escape, rolled out into the snow. It was kind of knee-deep snow. I was completely unprepared, didn't have like big boots or a coat. And so, I, yeah, I just wandered around in the snow trying to find some help and no one would really help me. Finally, I found my way back to somewhere and, and then got back to my place of work. But when I got there and I told, you know, the managers, the other managers and the, and the, the staff, they're like, normal, no, it's normal. Like, stop whinging. <laughs> you know, and things like this happened all the time. Like, you know, we'd have someone come into the bar and, you know, you would offend them or wouldn't give them what they wanted and then they'd pull out a gun to your head. Like, and we had people getting shot. We had, yeah, it was really, it was really bad. And so, uh, you know, now when I'm older, I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking staying there? But I was just this blue-eyed, you know, innocent Aussie chick just thinking, wow, look at this. This is, this is like a movie. You talk about stress inoculation, putting yourself in that environment to then teach yeah. that down the track and have those experiences and it's it's horrible hearing that story and thank god you cracked that guy in the throat and yeah. that that ended up the way it did but yeah my goodness at that age with you know, no formal training the military and your partner matt you know and i want to talk about matt he's a great guy and tell him i said hi but i want to tap into what you've learned in recent years but back then my gosh you would have been so green oh yeah i mean i didn't have any brothers that i used to rumble with so I think it was just sheer unadulterated primitive response 
that there's there's two ways that this can go and I'm choosing. That's one thing I get to choose is, is it going to go bad or go very bad? And luckily it wasn't that bad, you know. And did, did that is that what then led to following the pathway down human behaviour, stress, studying the, the physiology? Did, did that start straight away or did, did that sort of develop for a while? I know. I, w- I think it's always been a I've been incredibly inquisitive around biology and, you know, I wanted to be a forensic scientist when I was little and then I was always just dissecting animals and and just really fascinated with, with human behaviour. So my mother used to teach socially and emotionally disturbed children and so and, and she, a teacher and she, she did a master's and so she was also very fascinated in people and then I suppose trying to work out, you know, mental health disruption because I was living with it with, in my family. And so I just wanted to know why. I was just always asking, but why, but why? And uh, originally I wanted to go and do medicine, but um, I was a bit naughty at school and never didn't study enough, so just got into science. And so I was going to do medical microbiology, immunology, which I studied, and then go on to do the GAN. But then I found myself just reading psychology books all the time. And I was like, wow, you know what I really should do? What I love and what I'm passionate about. So then I transferred my degree over to a psych degree and just loved it. It was like, wow, like every aspect, every lecture I went to, it was super fascinating because everybody's got a personality. Everybody's got, you know, know someone with mental health disruption. Everybody needs help understanding, you know, motivation, um, you know, behavioural um, outcomes, why people do the things they do. And so, yeah, this was just an absolute passion of mine. Yeah, so just going back. So I came, I travelled around a bit more, came back, then went to, you know, uni and then have just spent literally ever since, God, um, 2007, I think I've been, you know, actively studying and so I finished the psych degree and then I thought, what should I do? And at this stage, I'd had a marriage breakup and so I was had three kids and I had to get a job. And I was like, oh, my, because I was, you know, tutoring, but I said, I actually need a proper job. And then so I was going to go out and maybe do something in change management and something, you know, organisational psychology. And, but I think at that time the, the Campbell government had just sacked a whole lot of like 30,000 employees. So then the market was saturated and I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to get a job. So then I thought I'll just keep studying. So then I studied honours and I was really interested in emotions and emotional intelligence and stress. And so I then went from the School of Psychology over to the business school and did my honours in um, business management, but looking at stress in the workplace. And so I did a lot of experiments around um it was actually cyber bullying and ostracism and i was still super interested in the whole physiology part so i was looking at stress and i thought you know what i know about stress uh, when you study it people lie <laughs> they either over you know catastrophize their stress state or they under report it and so i thought i've got to get a sort of objective bi- biometric way of capturing people's stress state. And so that's when I got into saliva and cortisol testing and immune function testing. So I ran a heap of um, big studies there using students. And then I was also really interested in emotional intelligence, if that was a a buffer of stress, which you know, we found out it was. And then as I was um, said before, trying to get a job, 
couldn't get a job. And so then my my um, professor said, hey, how about you do um, some lecturing for us at, at the School of, of Business? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like an awesome idea. Is it, you know, is it pay? And they're like, yep. Yeah. I'm like, yes, I really need to like look after my three kids. And he said, there's this one little thing. I'm like, what? He said, well, you have to do a PhD to, to, to be a lecturer at, at um, UQ. And I'm like, how hard is that going to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking into it at the moment and um, I, I need to come to you for some counselling, I think, because if you've managed to do that as a single mom with three kids, my goodness, that's a yeah. big workload. Mm, yeah, well, it, it was. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so I ended up doing my PhD in, in kind of, those three different cohorts with the business, the psychology and the physiology, I kind of brought those all together and did my research and a preemptive approach to stress, looking at biomarkers and people in high stress environments. And so that's what led me then to the um, special forces. I'm just going to put a placard up when you're in the rocks. Now that we're back traveling again, you and I said before we went live, how good is it that we're traveling and doing live events? But when a tourist come to Sydney Gemma, they walk in the rocks and there's a tour guide with a placard or a sign. And so I'm just going to put the sign up because you've just gone bang, 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 bang. And I'm just taking breath and catching up. And I'm sure <laughs> our listeners are as well. Two parts you've mentioned I want to drill down on a little bit more. One is the notion of range. I can't help but think you've become an overnight success in 20 to 25 years because when you, you grow up with the differences in your mum and dad and you have mm. that curiosity and you're on a farm and you're a bit of a tomboy and then you go to Russia and you're in those terrible situations where you were kidnapped and then you're in a bar and the way men were behaving back then, which was just shocking. And then you learn Russian and you're challenging your brain and then you come back and then you start a relationship and you have three kids and you start a job and then you have to start my goodness so when you turn up to people and say hey how do you become an expert in stress and performance here's my story interesting side note i had a young strength and conditioning coach from an another team i'm at mainly seagulls and he mm -hmm. called up with me about about two months ago and i know mm -hmm. his dad well and he said oh Maisie, look how did you get into strength and conditioning and then take that to mental skills because i'd love to do what you do and and i didn't prepare it but it just happened on the spot and i said to him oh mate here's how you do it and it's only taken me 25 years to become a so-called expert in high performance <laughs> yep. and i said do a sport be good not great uh go and study that uh work at the australian institute of sport then take lots of overweight people for walking uh it's called personal training start a business uh and i just went through my timeline you know study exercise physiology, pack up and move somewhere, start again, um, you know, win multiple state championships but never get to that next level, start another business, sell that to a global hotel company, uh, start a relationship, have two kids, partners high profile on TV, go through a divorce. Uh, and my story was you, know, you stay together, mum and dad, Irish yeah. Catholic family, same, 52 same. years have been married. And so the schema I had around that is I'm a failure functioning depression for 18 months, get out of my own way when one of my best mates, shout out Mario, said, mate, you're not okay. It's okay to not be okay. Go see a psychologist. Anyway, then study psychology, then go back and work in sport, work in a global consulting firm. And I think after you do that, you might be ready to go. And, and, and as I looked at this young guy's eyes, <laughs> like, he just oh said to me, God. oh, fuck. And his exact <laughs> words, Gemma, were, oh, fuck. I thought there was a course <laughs> the course, the University of Life. <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, the range that you've had, while different to mine, it's given you 
uh, really broad set of skills, practical, living in stressful situations and how you handle that, growing up, schema, family of origin, studying. And I said it's this- like knowing what you, like, honestly, it's so important to know what you don't want to do. Like experience what you don't want because, like, there's nothing a greater motivation through like, movement away from something, fear of being something. So talk to me more about that. I, I mean, you always like what a motivator is like passion for something, moving towards or running away from something. And I honestly think humans are often more motivated by fear or the reluctance to want to be something or or having something chase them rather than passion. I mean, that comes later. Where it's, it's almost like it's a privileged state to be able to act on your passions because who can do that, right? Most people are running from something mm. <laughs> or avoiding something. Mm. So but that's you, okay. You can like, use it running not. from to get there and then hopefully you're doing something which is sustainable. Passion passion. Way, yeah. Yeah. So holding up the placard again, uh, marriage breakdown, are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah. What, what was your experience like? Because you, you nodded as I said that and did you struggle as much as I did or did you cope better because of your background and maybe a little bit more stress coping when you were younger than I had? I think, well, females probably do better in divorces um, straight up. Is that really? right? Just at the risk of sounding flippant, male-female relationship breakup, guys like going, what, what do you mean, females? I've been telling you dipshit for the last five years. Yeah. we we The reason being is we articulate our pain, we sit around the kitchen table, we cry to each other. We often have the kids more more of the time, which means we, we can't be indulgent and sit around like, you know, lying in bed, not brushing your hair and crying. You, you have to get up. Like, so there's almost like there's necessity to 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 keep going because you've got these little people relying on you. So where often the males, they, like you know, don't have the kids. And this is, I mean, like there are, off, of course, people who don't do it the way I did. But, you know, look, statistically, women mostly take the burden of the child caring. Yeah, and I think that men don't think they'll be as upset or, or you know, and of course they're, they're not meant to show their emotions and they're supposed to be stoic and keep going. But I just think women are better at big life crises because we share the pain and, and pain shared is pain halved. And so- Yeah, I tried to be stoic and bury it and I thought, yeah, I'm going to be fine and I wasn't. And the more that I pushed it back, the worse I became. And it really yeah. did get to a point where- the breaking point, I thought, I just can't go on because I was on stages and you know, doing the work that you and I do. Uh, I wasn't in sport at that time. I'd left sport because I had worked with Accor and then started another business, which we ended up selling to KPMG. So I was just in that process in the middle of that. And I had this corporate persona and I was in total disconnect with who I was and owning my emotions and my experience. It was there was stage me and then there was the real me and it was a real disconnect, which led to mm. even more pain and the gap. Yeah. yeah. The, the the gap is where the pain lies. It's like the reality versus expectation. I think that's, you know, what so many people feel stress. It's where where I think I should be and where I am. So I suppose that, you know, being, you know, Catholic, you, st- you stick by your your partner through thick and thin, and like I had all of that as well. So yeah, I definitely struggled with that failure, and and even even the other day, my kids went to visit their grandparents on the other side, and they and they said to my kids, "You'll never know what it's like to grow up in an intact family," like so cruel. Um, so yeah, it was it incredibly tough, but I definitely have very good mental health 
I've never had depression. Um, if anything, I'd probably like would go more anxious, but um, that's one thing I've always been good at is just keeping myself fairly sane despite um, what's going on around me. Good segue to a quote I read mm. about you. A single-minded focus on being better, discipline and attention to detail can also make your world myopic and make you a little neurotic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, like, you think about um, high performers, why do they do it? And it's going back to that thing, it's about they're typically probably – there's a little person inside of them saying, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And that's why they get up earlier. That's why they train often with a lot of physical and psychological pain. They make huge sacrifices, personal, family, um, social sacrifices. Like happy, content people don't typically do that. They can stay in bed and feel totally okay with it where what pushes high performers I think is a is a – internal deficit mm. which is a good thing right um as long know. as it starts i often say a chip yeah. on the shoulder gets you going so a lot of yeah. athletes artists performing artists business people you and i work with if you go back the majority of them i'd say 99 percent, have a chip on the shoulder at some stage that gets them going yeah, yeah. it's our job then or their job to work with us to turn that chip into drive and then when you link that to purpose and higher order, it becomes fulfilling. It's the Olympic athlete that stands up on the podium. They've got the gold medal and there's loads of stories and I'm sure you have stories you can share as do I. And then once they've played the anthem and the national flag goes down, they step off the podium and they go, there's nothing different. Well, actually there is. There's an emptiness because the whole life has been focused on this principle of high performance that becoming the olympian getting a gold medal will change everything yeah and it actually can often lead to a big dip in that post-olympic depression absolutely yeah like i always say the halls of excellence are filled with a waft of insecurity but that insecurity drives discipline and then once you've got those discipline that discipline and those processes embedded in your unconscious competence and your memory that then will propel you forward to be to be great at once as you said you've cleared up that chip but yeah, it is. Um, it's definitely anticlimactic, and this is one of the things that we always try and teach: is to try and become a multi, you know, a multi-discipline, a multifunctional person with multiple identities. Because if you know, if you get injured or you, for some reason, can't do that thing, that, that vocation that you've been trying so hard, you're not going to fall down in an, into a identity hole. Mm. You've got other things that you're good at. So performing under pressure. Just going back to what you said this week, you're with a, a NASCAR driver, um, you're working with swimmers, uh, you're working with executives at Coca-Cola. So when a high performer comes to see Dr. Gemma King, mm -hmm. how does it all start in the beginning? Like what's the framework you work with someone? Because I really want to get into talking about some of the constructs and even a few practical examples. But I, I, I don't know what you do, but I know your expertise and practice. And I'm sure you start with some sort of understanding or in the beginning. So what does that look like, that process? Yeah, so – it really depends on like who they are and, and what they're doing. But, you know, one thing is true is that when the people I work with is hugely diverse defence, sport, corp corporates, but what I know is that when a human is put under pressure, albeit, you know, the boardroom or the battlefield or the Olympic blocks or even the exam blocks, 
like we all have the same neural architecture and the same stress response system, like ir irrespective of their vocational environment. And so what I really do start with everyone is helping them understand the human physiology and the stress response system, because that's consistent. And we know that the human brain has a really hard time differentiating real life and death stress compared to like, you know, non-tangible emotional stresses, what, what they typically deal with, like social stress, you know, threats to our reputation or being judged on our intellectual or physical capabilities in front of a huge audience, like at the Olympics. And I sort of educate the same system kicks off and and that's where I start. Um, I, I often immerse myself into that person's environment and try and sort of like an ethnographic research of what are what does their day look like? You know, what are the stresses that they know? What are the the things that they don't so will know? Will you go and do a lap? Will you go and hop in a car? So with a racing car driver, will you yeah, say- Yeah, I've done that. You have? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, when I was at the Special Forces, they did a full mission profile. They chucked me out of a plane and chucked me off the, uh, the they've got a big tower there. And so they took me to do things. So because they wanted, the, the, the mindset was, all right, Kingy, what's your nickname with the military? Have you got a nickname? Just Gems. Gems, Big J. Yeah. All right, Gems. If, if, you, if you're going to do all this with us, champ, you better go and experience it. Uh, we had yeah, this experience exactly. with Navy. We're doing work with Navy. And have you ever done Hewitt helicopter underwater escape training? No, but I've um, I've got a um, it's fucking awful. Who, yeah, I mean, all the guys who I've, I've seen it, I haven't done it, and I know you've done it, and you you know. I just, you telling me about it, I could just feel like my anxiety rise and my chest starting to tighten, just hearing about you doing it. So I was thinking before our interview, you know, I've immersed myself in Gemma King because there's you have lots of interviews and loads of great content. I had no idea about the Russian experience and you know, uh, police <laughs> academy. So that was just gold. Wizard, looking at Wizard when he said that, he just looked at me and goes, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> But when you do the Hewitt and they, they they put you in six different locations, so this is where stress inoculation comes in. So I teach this like you, right? But I got to number four and I was panicking just internally going, this is fucking stupid. Because when you're in the configuration, you close your eyes and they flip you upside down. Then you've got a, a like, well, first of all, anchor, harness. I'm going through some of the moves. So you, they teach you to do it upright, obviously, so that when you're flipped upside down, because mm -hmm. 85% of helicopters in water tip upside down. Yeah. We were on two. The final one we had to do blindfolded. They told us to do the first one blind with your eyes closed and then do it from there on. So you take out, and it makes sense because if you flipped upside down bubbles and you go, you look at the roof, yeah, uh, and then you see, okay, I've got to get out, you go the wrong way. So we took out one sense, which actually helped, but it was really tough. And on the fourth one. And so I had to go back and do what you're saying. Actually think about like what's happening to me. I'm getting an amygdala hijack. My cortisol, my adrenaline levels are going through. My brain's hijacking. I know all this stuff. Sometimes knowing it though is actually a little bit worse because then I'm thinking, they're looking at me thinking, all right, big dog. You should, you should have this. Like, yeah, that happened to me. They were like, yeah. um, when I'm up in a plane, they're looking at me, they're telling me all the worst stories about everyone who died in the last, you know, five years in the terrible ways just to freak me out to see if I would do what I teach. So did, how did you go? Did, did, After the fourth one, I 
panicked and I went to go into the cabin rather than going out. And they have divers underneath who will actually help you. And then there's a code, you tap your head and then that's when you're tapping out. And then I just felt this body grab me, push me to another diver and I shot up. I lay on the side. It felt like 10 minutes was probably only a minute. (gasps) I just swallowed a bit of water and I went outside, sat in the sun and just thought, it's actually, I went back to when I swam the English Channel and I was having anxiety attacks or panic attacks in cold water in the dark. And I had a phrase that was, you know, be calm, be strong, you've got this. Yeah. Actually, no, it's stay calm, be strong, you've got this. And I just said the same thing. It was really interesting. I haven't processed this other than talking to you now. The muscle memory then kicked in, similar to what I did when I was having those anxiety attacks or panic attacks. And I went back and just said, stay calm, be strong, you've got this. And I did five and six and they said, I'm Maisie, do you want to do another one? I said, get the fuck out of here. Don't take this the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a great experiment to put myself in that situation. Yeah, I think you've got to, you don't know how you act under pressure unless you like try it. And that's why, you know, with athletes, you shouldn't leave it to the day or with military or even in business, you shouldn't leave it to the big meeting. You've got to like, you've got to know the parameters of your behavioural possibilities. Well, I'm back at Navy in a few weeks down at Nara. I'll swap you a Hewitt for a, a heli, for a, yeah. <laughs> for a parachute. Would, would you do it? Would you do a Hewitt? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Right, for sure. Love it. So I hijacked your story. I just, I think that was part counselling, Gemma, and part sharing. <laughs> so you, you experience what the athlete is doing to get an understanding of what they're going through. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to, because often uh, when you're in these environments, you have blinkers on or you've been trained to not feel pain or or like your situational awareness is quite low. So you have someone coming in from, you know, psych background and also physiology background. It's really good for that to be observed. And so, and I do it with businesses as well. And then, um, you know, I go through what do they think is is going wrong in their lives. And I, I go come from a biopsychosocial um, perspective where I, I start really at the micro. So really, how are you sleeping? It's I always like if someone's off kilter, first go to is sleep hygiene. So for anyone who that. doesn't have a degree in exercise physiology, neuroscience, chemistry, psychology, sociology, any of the ologies, if we look at those three words, bio, so that's the biology, that's biology, yeah. physiology, the psychology, mm-hmm. that the thinking, yeah. and social. So that's the environment and interaction with others. So you you go that approach. That approach. Yeah, I call myself a psychophysiologist. So it's looking at the nexus between how the brain and the body work. And then, you know, the sociology part is like, how does that actually help you turn up in your greater I like, I love that. I've never heard you say that. Yeah, well, I suppose that's, you know, that's all my research at UQ is psychophysiology, which, you know, like some people hate it because if some of the psychologists are like, you know, that's our domain. You just like there's these certain types of theoretical principles or um, constructs that they hold on to like a religion <laughs> and theirs is right and then the physiologists are over here where I'm like this doesn't make sense you have to have you have to look at them both in concert to get a you know a, a true and accurate representation of what's going on here if you want to change behaviors you can't just change the body and, and expect the mind to follow or you can't just change the mind and expect the, the body to follow you've got to work on both 
And so- Some um, of our parallels are uncanny because when I, I did exercise physiology first and that was largely through being an athlete. You understand a lot of it, but you put some science to it. And then I realized I was limited. So I went and studied psychology, coaching psychology. And I can remember sitting between both camps um, because I have the people who'd done traditional psychology who were going, well, no, we don't need to talk about physiology and sleep and nutrition. Yeah. And I can remember yeah. saying in our high performance lecture, but you're not a head on a stick. And I just got people like looking at me. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't think it's all body. I don't think it's all brain, but yeah, thank goodness for neuroscience. We now know and through vagal tone and a lot of the work that you and I both do, you can get the body and brain talking together and working in harmony rather than sitting there going, I'm going to control the domain of psychology and I'm going to do push-ups and tell everyone to eat carrots and I'm a personal trainer. Rubbish. It's all interconnected. Yeah. Like you think about Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, you know, this has been around for three to 5,000 years. So to think that, oh, look at this new thing we're doing, psychophysiology. It's just, you know, it doesn't make sense. So, yeah, that's that's my perspective and I think it's it's just intuitive and it makes sense. And there's some people who, and, like, it, it really helps you come at um, the situation with a toolbox. So some people are a bit more psychologically orientated, some people are a bit more physiologically orientated, some people are concrete thinkers, they like to see data and facts, where others, you can um, throw some more ephemeral um, terminology at them and they like that. So, you you know, really you're just sort of reading the person, reading their environment and trying to work out like what, what tools within your toolbox would be most helpful for these people. And so when I work with someone, it can start from like anywhere. Typically I look at sleep first, then it could be like diet or eating for emotional stability. And I educate on all the things that can throw you blood glucose levels. We're doing some research on the moment, the moment on that where we put CGMs, those continuous glucose monitors on people's arms, gut biome and looking at the impact of those factors on cognitive performance, mental performance, um, mood state and um, sleep and stress. So that's, you know, two really big factors, you know, gut biome and diet. And then I look at internal dialogue. What are you telling yourself? What are you visualizing? What are, you know, what is, get them to do a due diligence of the, of the, what they're saying to, their, to themselves and their brain. As we know, you, your brains really have a hard time differentiating between imagining something and, and someone actually saying something to you. So if you're there chastising yourself, you're an idiot, why did you do that? Your brain is 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 processing this as if there's a third person saying it to you and you'll get all those biochemical reactions as if you're under assault. So, you know, so that's really looking at, you know, the the mental rumination, the flavour of it. I often go back and say, you know, where did this come from? Like, you know, look back into your childhood, like where did this way of being and talking to yourself, where does that come from? Then I, I spend a lot of time at looking at um, interpersonal dynamics, um, relationships, primary relationships with your significant other, children, your bosses, and there's often patterns. You know, you'll have certain patterns of behavioural interaction that are consistent, typically from your childhood. Then I look at yourself more broadly in your environment, and this can actually be your physical environment, your office, your bedroom, your house, your workplace, and then more broadly, where is your place in the world, in society? What is your meaning and purpose? What, what are those more existential considerations to make you a happy and whole person? So there's a huge spectrum and I'll oscillate between, you know, one end or the other, just depending on what's going on in someone's life. 
And There's a uh, lot of touch points, a lot of data, a lot of psychology, a lot of self-reflection. There'll be a lot of accountability. There'll be homework. There'll be coaching. At times, you're probably mentoring or telling. Other times, asking. And that, that's detail. It's rich. It's robust. How yeah. long does that take? What's an average consignment? Someone says, hey, Big J, I want to work with you up until this event or I'm going for a big job or I've just been promoted as CEO and I'm, I need to perform better under pressure. Well, what's the window? Oh, it's completely different. So I can go in and do like, you know, a workshop for a day, but then I've been on retainers in, in organisations where I just keep coming back. I sit in an organisation like two days a month and their, you know, high performers will, will you know, sort of Congo line through at certain times of the of that day. And that's, you know, like, you know, a year contract or so it's very, very different. And I have people that will come and go. They'll come, they'll hit me up when they need me and then they'll go away for a while. So it's very, it's very different. Yeah. There's no and I don't like being cookie cutter, like this is my program, this is what you, you know, all I do, because it doesn't suit everybody. Some people just need a little bit of help. Some people need an enormous amount of help. Some people want help dealing with others in their lives and um, and then help, you know, basically working out sort of organisational strategies in terms of this biopsychosocial stuff. So, Dr. King, I, I get all that. I've heard your podcast. I've heard other people have worked with you. It takes a couple of months. It's detailed. You go through a bio psychosocial approach. Got it. I'm CEO. I'm starting in two weeks. Give me a hack. Do you do you just go ah like that when I hear the word <laughs> yeah. hack? But other people say yeah, you can drink rubbish food, so eat rubbish food, drink heaps, not exercise, be totally overweight, bathe your body in a sea of stress hormones, and suddenly yeah. I want the hack that's going to yeah. make me better overnight. I just I shudder. I go why? Why do you want to do this? What like what do you want? Why do you want it? Um, why aren't you getting it now? What's what like you know? What do you think of the barriers? And um, is that true? And then I'll go, here's what I think your barriers are. And then, it'll be, you know, I start with physiology, sleep. What are you eating? Drinking, like, you know. And if they're not prepared to give up late nights and alcohol, like, I'll go, okay, we can work with that. Like, as I know how to drink <laughs> and not be completely wrecked the next day. Uh, you know, it was it was research and development and experimentation I had to do for my job. But, you know, I've, I've kind of done a lot of research on this. The, the, the pracademic, <laughs> the practical person. Your, yeah. your, your job description, you can't tell people what you do. And it's varied. Like, there's a passion. There's a love there. You're, you, you light up when you're talking about work. And is this, is this your dream job? If you'd sat down 10, 15 years ago, and someone said to you, Gemma, 15 years down the track, here's a, a magic ball. What does your dream job look like? Are you doing that or are you taking steps to get there? I've never been a planner. Yeah, like I've never planned. Everything's been very serendipitous. But I actually, as I said before, wanted to be um, a surgeon or be a, you know, be a medico. And I would always chastise myself because I started a degree, sort of got bored. I did, thought it wasn't for me. So I started law. I've started um finance of economics i studied when i got back from russia i did a bit of russian nearly failed so i've done i've like literally studied every um degree under the sun and then you know i, I sort of kept with um the physiology and the science and the psychology i finished the psychology and i finished my honors and i finished my phd but i always felt terrible about myself it was like i feel like such a failure because I, I i started all these things and i never finished them um 
And then, I, and I really wanted to be a doctor, and now I'm, and I'm not a doctor, like a proper doctor, because everyone says, "Oh, what sort of doctor are you? Oh, you're not a real doctor." But now, when I look at wait, 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 wait. to to get that that title, it, it's it's years and years of hard work and research. Tell that to my medico friends, like my real, because like, I've got friends who are anaesthetists or surgeons. Yeah, or, tell you, well, like, okay, the anaesthetists and surgeons, they've worked and worked and worked. But uh, I, I have some doctor friends, and sometimes I tell them, yeah, with respect, get your head out of your backside. Because yeah. <laughs> just because you're a medical doctor doesn't mean you're this omnipotent, omniscient body yeah, either. God delusion, yeah. But I don't know, you tell me, when you look at your life and you look at their life, and then you look at hours in responsibility, stress, um, quality of life, even earning capacity. I, c- I can absolutely guarantee. I'm so glad I didn't do it. I'm so glad I, I was, you know, was naughty in high school and didn't get the marks because honestly, what I do in my day is like, yeah, literally, it's a dream job. The people I get to hang out with, and and you know, I always say I don't make sick people normal I make normal people better and better people even better like wow it's so amazing I get to hang out with people who are at top of their game living their dreams and I get to help them do it I get to travel around the world I get to do something different every week and uh and I'm actually doing something of value like I'm not just making money or I'm not just um you know ticking boxes I'm literally helping people be better in their lives, be better at home, be better parents, be better um, members of society and enjoy life. And, like, what could be better than that? Oh, tick, 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 your brother or sister from another – brother from another mother, sister from another <laughs> mister. I was talking <laughs> yeah. to Tony last night and she just said, oh, yeah, what are you doing with some of the work you're doing? I've, I've been away a bit lately and it, with one of the teams I'm working with, you can see it on the weekend in 80 minutes and I was just telling her a few things about that and she went, I have none of that in my job. She yeah. said, yeah, we, we'll do a review every 12 months. So you mm. talk to your manager every 12 months and you see how you're going. With some of the athletes and teams you and I work with, you get feedback every week when you're mm-hmm. in season. So I love that immediacy. And I also love turning up to different environments and then thinking, how do I need to show up? I, I love that question that I've adapted from Owen Eastwood. Have you met Owen? He wrote that beautiful book on belonging. If you haven't... Uh, seen Owen's work about, especially sociology and teams and connection. He brings a lot of the Maori tradition and the papa into the, the workplace. He's uh-huh. now working with the English Olympic uh, team. He's working with the English oh. soccer team. So fascinating. Oh, wow. But I love Owen saying, how do I need to show up? So you look at how you show up. Can I ask you three different environments that you show up in? Mm-hmm. What have you learned from each one? And then I'll mm. ask you a question about adapting that across multiple environments. So the three different environments, let's go, first of all, what have you learned in sport? Mm-hmm. What have you then learned in military? And what have you learned mm-hmm. in the corporate world? Doozy yeah. of a question for you. Just just sort of give you the the, yeah. the hard ones now we're into it. So sport, maybe like, you know, defence, there's a very small window of opportunity where you have to perform, like in that moment, you know, your trajectory of your career can be, you know, determined within a hundredth of a second, like say for swimmers. And so that's that's really high stakes. Being able to coalesce everything you've ever done into that into that moment takes enormous preparation. And one thing I've learned from sport, it's not the people who win all the time that are actually the true champions. It's how capable a person is to coming back from failure scars. Like the true, true champions with longevity in their careers are the ones that are able to control their doubt, 
come back after some very significant public losses. And they and I find that true athletic champions or sporting champions have really dug deep. They've really cleaned out the vessel. They've, they've examined every brick and, and put it back together. So that's, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Uh, they are, I, I think, very self-focused, which you have to be. And um, Fine line, isn't there, between self-focus and when that becomes selfish? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have to be incredibly selfish. And I, I think just, you can be self-focused and not be an asshole. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's about the you know, the the goal, and not about me being amazing. It's like I want to get this goal, but you know, I find it interesting because I'm so like a squirrel. I'm like you know, I have to be doing something new all the time. Like I have enormous admiration for those that can stick at the same thing year in year out, the same training, and do that one thing just for that one moment. Like I don't understand it, and I could never do it. But I have you know. But your skill set comes from. Two very different, loving but you know, diametrically opposed parents. Yes. Then yeah, going okay. to rush. So, did, have you thought about that when you actually trace your timeline to what got you to where you are? Have you actually pulled on that thread, like you, know, you, you, really. you and I do with others? Have you done that with yourself? No, not really. No, I haven't. I mean, I've done. I mean, at times a lot of self reflection, but no, I probably haven't de- delved in enough and, and really looked at that. But. I think maybe, I, you know, my dad was a hoteler, so we moved every three years. And so it was always new school, the new girl, something different, something new. My sister really hated it, didn't cope very well at all, where I loved it. Um, and so I think that that's really sort of set me up for wanting to have new, different and not be able to just sit with the same thing all the time. God knows how I did a PhD, though, because that was excruciating. Like, that's why I'm coming to you as my mentor. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so swimmers... Going deep in a topic, and you've done a lot of great work with the Australia Gold Medal Ready Program. Can you give our listeners just a bit of a highlight on what you did for some of the swimmers on that, some of the work the you athlete, did? Yeah. yeah, the athletes. So, we, um, so what happened was I was studying and consulting to the Australian Special Forces, and Rick Burr, who was head of the Army, was there, and he was looking at my work, and then he was good friends with John Bertrand, who was – um, at the time, the president of, of Swimming Australia. And so he said, oh, look, can you, he'd been going all around the world looking for something to help the swimmers uh, perform under pressure post Rio Olympics. And he said, I, I remember the moment I, I, I met him and he's like, what are you doing here? Because I was sort of like the only female in this sea of green. Um, and he's like, who are you? And then we got talking and I said, this is what we've been doing. This is my research. We've been doing this performance under pressure. Um, research, had great results. He said, okay, can you come and work with us? And that's when um, Matt, who was running the human performance wing at the Australian Special Forces, and I went and consulted to the swim team. And from there, Peter Condy, who was head of the AAS at the time, said, we're setting up this gold medal ready program and we're getting consultants in to help develop the, the content. And basically what this gold medal ready program was about, we call it GMR, was about bringing the wisdom of those that had walked before in high stress, high stakes environments. So they were commandos, people who'd been to war and had been shot at on numerous occasions and then previous gold medal winning uh, athletes from all different disciplines. And so what we did, we got these moments in time where we all came together and they told stories that young athletes asked questions and it was so good. And then I would develop my, I would do, sorry, I developed and delivered content around stress 
the stress response system, emotional intelligence and all those sorts of things. And so, yeah, it's it was it was hugely fun and, and it was really successful. So now there's, I think, 23 national sporting organisations that have taken up our curriculum and they're starting to um, get it into the younger pathway um, generation. That's fantastic to know you're having that impact on young athletes, especially young athletes, because if they can get those base skills, understanding physiology and not getting that hijack and learning to live with stress and channel it in the right way as you teach people, that can be a major advantage rather than getting up on the blocks or you're at the track of the starting block and you feel this wave and then thinking, shit, what's happened to me? You can use that to fuel you rather than to yeah. absolutely crush you. The amount of uh, like old gold medal athletes said, oh, my God, if I'd known this, that actually my shakes – uh, on the blocks was like adrenaline and adrenaline is, you know, increasing your speed of that response and that's actually good for you. That Just that knowledge alone would have just been a game changer for me and, and just knowing, so we spoke a lot about anticipatory stress. But just before you and go on anticipatory stress, you said a lot of the older gold medal winners. So these are men and women who've won gold medals at the Olympics. Yeah. Without yeah. that that skill set. They worked it out. They, oh, they'd, um, they'd found ways, didn't know the science behind it. You know, they just, yeah, just had, or had good coaches. Some of them had performance coaches, very few of them. But, you know, they just worked it out or were just really naturally very good at managing stress. So, yeah, it was it was so good. And we still all hang out and, and catch up and, you know, text. You've got this WhatsApp group still. So, you know, it's it's, it's really lovely to, to have these two worlds collide where, you know, typically they weren't. And then we ran these um, stress inoculation camps at Special Forces. So we had people from the AAS, we had commandos, then we had athletes come in. And so um, one of the activities was I got them to jump off this 90-foot tower backwards and was teaching them how to do it. And so I was teaching them resonant breathing and vagus nerve reset and all these um, stress-in-the-moment protocols. And I was also teaching them and you know anticipatory stress protocols and then coming back from failure protocols as well. So we had the whole gamut, you know, the pre, before, during and post. So, yeah, um, I think a lot of them found hugely, hugely beneficial because, you know, you're at the top of this 90-foot tower. It's really scary and you've got to jump off backwards off this thing with no training. I mean, it's all very safe. The guys know how to do it. So a lot of them were like, I'll never do this. I can't do that. And then when we, we put them through some of these protocols to get their physiology under control, all of a sudden their brains came back online and they were like, yeah, I can do this. Did, did you train those protocols? Because a lot of the work that, that we do in especially sport and contact sport, as an example, will pre well, you train the cognitive skills. So you train the mental skills in a non-pressurized environment. So you can draw on them when you need them most, the front loading. Did you do that or did, did you yeah. go to camp? and then taught the skills at camp, or did you teach them before camp? We did before as well, yeah. yeah. Got like, it. So it's really hard for you to assimilate, learn um, novel or even technical information when you're in that fight or flight state. You know, your neural architecture just doesn't allow for it, so we're, not, we're very cognizant of that. And so we would teach them the, the foundational principles of what's going on in their body and their brains before and then give them strategies, get them to, to um, practice it, then we'd stress inoculate them and get them to utilise those new skills under pressure. And then they so, catch up and go, ah, oh, you taught me that resonant breathing or you taught me that yeah, reset. Yeah. Aha. So then 
play that forward to the Olympics or to the trials when the pressure comes in and they're starting to have that sea of all that wave of emotion. Huh, I know what to do now. Yeah, it's also getting the confidence in, in your bank. Like a lot of it is like I know at that level and you know yourself that everybody's fit enough, everyone's got, you know, requisite skill acquisition. They all are very good at what they do. Otherwise they wouldn't be at the Olympics. But who wins on that day is he or she who can manage their stress in the moment. Like that is really the differentiator. And what does that need? It needs a mindset. It needs you to be able to control your, your thoughts or control your physiology at will when it starts to misbehave. And so what we did, um, a lot of stress inoculation is like, so when they're in that moment, they're like, oh, I've done this before and I have achieved. And so that's a good memory to have in the memory bank you can pull out. So for the Olympic um, swim team, um, we went down to the AIS and had the ray, the relay, the female relay um, camp. And so on that camp, we did a heap of really funny stress inoculations where we had the girls come out of the ready room and then we had sirens and we had smoke bombs and poppers and and then people screaming and they had to walk and we had already taught them how to like stay calm. And then when they were on the blocks, I had this taser, I shouldn't really be telling people this, that I'd picked up in some market in Turkey. It was highly illegal. And then I had one of these little clickers. I wonder if I've got one here. You know those clickers you have when um you've got a mozzie bite and you kind of like just yeah, you know, yeah. pop the itch? So, like, Kate Campbell was on the blocks and she's like, you know, um, I think Emma was coming up, Emma McKeon. And so I, like, put the taser in front of Kate's face like, and then clicked her on the back of the of her leg oh, with a little pretty- shot. Just, and she did not flinch, did not miss a beat. Then I squirted blood on her feet and blood into the water, didn't miss a beat. And it was like, and we were getting water pistols with hot and cold water You're in there. You were brutal. How do you come up with all this stuff? And well, <laughs> I can't believe they let us do it. And then so um, Simon Cusack said when they were at the Olympics, he was saying to Kate, you've been shot at, you've been- You've been tasered. You've been tasered. The you crazy been- blonde chick that came in and tasered you then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was so, but also we did like sleep deprivation training, um, media training, like when you're, when you're tired. So a lot of, you know, we talk about energy management. So I always say that you've got a well of- of resources, and we know whether you think, um, move, reminisce, wh- whatever you do, you're, you're drawing from the same well of resources. And so you have to be very cognizant of where you let that energy leak or where you utilize that that energy. Because when you're in a um, you know in a relay or, or a pool, those hundredth of a second of your back um, end of your race is where you win or lose. And if you've been like seeping out energy. Um, you know, cogitating, ruminating before the game or the or the or the race, that is really precious energy that you need. And so very, very cognizant of like what you're doing. Is that replenishing, depleting, or sustaining your energy? And no, I know it. So we would get them to work out the things they do before. Uh, um, is that a replenishment activity? Is that a um is that a depletion activity? And then you become very very cognizant of what you should do or what you shouldn't do. And we know that not all rest is equal and you've got to match your rest to your stress. And so I've broken down, I think about like five different types of, you know, emotional stress or cognitive stress or just stress generally. And then you've got to know which one is primary and then you've got to match your recovery to that type of stress. 
So yeah, there was a so lot for of people like listening, and uh, you and I could talk about sport for hours. We'll jump into the military soon as well because I'm fascinated and I love hearing what you've done, you crazy woman, to our Olympic swimmers. But <laughs> sports is high stakes, high pressure, and you've got a window. You're training for four years to go through the gate and get that opportunity. And if you crash, if you don't hit the time, you wait another four years. So it's it's quite brutal and immediate feedback. So let's jump into the military. What mm-hmm. did you learn working in the military? Yeah, God, the military, like, it was something else. I had no idea that how much I was going to learn from them or enjoy it. Like, I was like, you know, army. I, I really had nothing to do with the army. I didn't know anything about it. So when I won this army research scheme funding, I was like, oh, um, so go down to Sydney, uh, really cloistered, very closed environment and um, very sort of, you know, it's hard, even hard to get on the base. There's no other civilians. And so, and you can imagine, I just stood out like a sore thumb because everyone's in uniform and there's no other females. And then, you know, you're dealing with people who are really at, you know, the pointy end. They've offered to really sacrifice their lives for the, you know, the safety and the service of, of society. So. They're quite different people in that regard. They've got they really live their you know life in higher purpose, higher meaning every day. And um, I found the guys at the special forces to be extremely intelligent. They've got you know we tested their IQs over one forty, and incredibly fit, but incredibly inquisitive, and have this sort of bent for excellence and mastery. So they're always asking, looking, like trying to get that edge, trying to do everything they can to better themselves. And they were literally some of my best students. They're a like different was, beast, aren't they? When you're working with men and women at that point in, they are, they literally are the best yeah. of the best. Yeah. And um, and of course that comes at a cost as well. But then that's why we were really much about, you know, teaching this um this holistic perspective. We wanted really people to, you know, be multiple dimensions um and just not have that identity commando because and they were very good at this you know had multiple interests and sets of expertise in case something happened and a lot of them have gone on to be very very successful but so yeah going down there i i learned the art of subjugating your ego for a greater good which is they really had low ego very very team orientated everything was about other like even stuff like I'd walk into a room and just chuck my bag down and people would be like it's a trip hazard like you know think of where your shit is and where your body position is and don't be in the way and always be ready and always have your shit squared and always have your stuff perfectly set up and so um, always you know help someone um, put their stuff back exactly where you found it like all of these processes that I'd never grown up with was incredibly eye-opening and I think without it I definitely would not be successful today because I'm pretty scatty and messy Um, and so I I became quite disciplined working in that environment and um, high attention to detail, high levels of accountability, never you never ever lie, Uh, you always tell the truth even if it's to your own detriment and you always help and be there for others like that was the kind of culture that I stepped into and tough and very funny, dark, dark humour, um, which was quite hilarious. What I found was was friend, were friends. And when I did my PhD, there was this like unquestioning bent for just muck in and do everything you can to your highest level of professionalism, 
because and so when I was running my experiments and it were well, big experiments very complicated lots of cortisol testing lots of moving parts the team just went in and just were onto it mm. and spreadsheets and timesheets and everything was booked and and the range was booked and the tower was booked and I was like oh my god like uh, similar with the work we're doing with Navy and big shout out to Sam Tickle I Sam, I'll send you a copy of this podcast to give you the shout out. But amazing that just the the organisation and even Ange and I have said we, we we Sam some of our processes so organised, so structured, but also you not only have learned about the military through the work you've done with the army, but Matt, your partner, so he's, he's ex-military. Tell me, what's that like? Uh, having a partner who's from the military or ex-military, one and two. What yeah. have you learnt from Matt? Yeah, so like if you think about, <laughs> you know, would you match on Tinder? No way. Like I've got a PhD. I think, you know, he got to the year 10, but he's so much smarter than me actually. It was very, very big culture shock to be around someone who came from that environment. But there's a symbiosis there. Like the things that I'm good at are much more creative and much more sort of outgoing, social, um, explorative you know, I'm high levels, if you do the big five of me, high levels of openness to experience um, where he is very process-driven, structured, disciplined, regimented in like, get you know, what you, you know your space, your money, your um, the way you operate your daily life. So there's been huge learnings on both sides where he had, has had to maybe lose some of his OCD around... <laughs> around having mess in the house. Um, we're heading we're, for a coffee at 0900 hours. Here's the path yeah. we're taking. We're going to head west direction. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, I think that with these different skill sets, we've been able to create this really amazing business together. So we don't even have, like, my business, but we've got Airbnbs that are really going fantastic. Um, two churches in Tassie and a, and a barn that he built. We've got a just got a farm where we're, we're putting in an old... Um, 100-year-old shearing shed we're going to build a billabong and have water contrast therapy and we'll have activities up there and okay. placard up placard <laughs> i'm glad we got this you know you just skim through this oh here we are Gemma, the research and she's doing all this work so you 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 and matt have got airbnbs yeah we've got businesses you, your businesses yeah. in tasmania isn't tassie beautiful i spent oh, six years there. It. it's stunning yeah and you're now opening up centers for the public yeah so, yeah, so he was um, – one of the things he did while he was in the regiment was trying to get the guys into activities that would really, you know, help them um, have other interests. And so one of them was um, he was got a Targa Tasmania car. And do you know Targa Tasmania? Yeah, 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 I used to yeah. – uh, loosely, uh, not like the racing car driver you're working with this week, but I yeah. I was personal trainer to a couple of businessmen in Hobart – who went oh. in the Targa every year. And one of the guys, his metric every year was, Maisie, get 10K off my gut because I got to fit in the Porsche. <laughs> so, <laughs> it wasn't that technical. It was just stripping 10K off so he could drive around Targa for the week. It's a phenomenal event. It's Beautiful. It's so dangerous though, right? So Matt, um, you know, has done really well in Targa Tasmania and he had the, all the, the guys from his unit go and help him. Yeah, so he was driving around north, north uh, what is it, northeast Tasmania? and saw these like gorgeous little quaint churches. He said, I want to get one of those. And I'm like, so after he left the military, he came up to Brisbane. And so he was like, you know, we can do this. We can get a church in Tasmania. I'm like, are you serious? We live in Brisbane. He's like, don't worry about it. 
I'm going to do it. And so then, yeah, he bought it and then we renovated it. Then we put it on Airbnb. Then we got another one. And then we he went and built this um this barn. And so, yeah, he um like, so he does things as well. Like he, he's done in four Sydney to Hobart races with some guys from unit just recently did the Brisbane to Gladstone. Yeah. He's very much high octane, loves to engage in high stress activities but also um, works really, really, really hard. And so, yeah, we've got, you know, this kind of very diverse life with very different- One, one more question on you and Matt, then let's jump into the corporate world. What do you do to downregulate? How do you relax? I wouldn't unless it was for him. He makes me. <laughs> he books it. He's my man criteria now, as he calls himself. So he books in downtime for me. And that'll be like, we'll, we'll go out in the boat, go fishing. I religiously have a massage every week. And that's something I taught Matt. He was like, oh, that's so indulgent. That's so wussy. You know, no, I'm not going to go and get, get a massage. I don't need that. But I'm like, no, 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 you've got, you've really, he was actually very badly injured in um, Afghanistan and got blown up. So he's got injured. I said, no, you really need to go and get a massage every week. So that's my only thing that I do consistently without a doubt. And it's just the local Thai girl um it's, and it's fantastic so the third area what have you learned in the corporate world yeah i mean i grew up as my father called us corporate nomads so my dad ran big hotels so i i really i think grew up thinking about business acumen um he was very strategic very um was very much into politicizing and machiavellian behavior so <laughs> i think i you know i grew up with it but with corporates, it's a, it's a tough world. You know, it is absolutely cutthroat, brutal. You know, it's not life and death. You're not getting shot at. But, you know, people in commercial world have often got huge amounts of money. Um, often they're you know, operating in litigious environments with legal ramifications. You've got extremely competitive, cutthroat people, not only within your organisation, but externally from your organisation that you have to be on your toes all the time. And I also think that with at the level I work with, like it's really hard to know everything. And so you have to be a jack of all trades because, you know, the business world is so complicated now. You can't possibly as a leader know all about HR, know all about IT, know all about, you know, your business, what's coming on the horizon, you know. So... There is a level of having to have really good self-esteem and having to build really good teams and trust the people beneath you to be doing the right thing. And I think also a phenomenon which I've been seeing increasingly worrying the leaders that I work with is the murky line between their organisation's responsibility for that psychosocial health of that person and what happens in their home life. And so... Now, working in organisations, it's fraught with danger because there's laws coming in around you have to provide safe psychosocial environments for employees, which is free from toxic um, environments. And like, well, what does that mean? So, yeah, that's some of the stuff that I'm working with, doing psychological safety um, training and um, research ar around this phenomenon. So I think, yeah, for, for people in business, it's a, it's a tough world, particularly after um, COVID. And so what I do, I bring a lot of the things I've learnt from the Defence Force and, and sport into the corporate world. 
I've got a new program for you, Gemma King. It's High Performance 12 Months with JK. Here's what it's going to look like. You spend the first three months focusing on biopsychosocial factors and you take them through the depth of the physical, the psychological, environmental, all those wonderful cues. So you give everyone the skills and you give them in a non-pressurized environment so they can front load those or draw on those when they need them the most. Then, then we put them in a high-performing sporting team for three months and it's either at the Institute of Sport or we take them to a rugby league team, go a great team like the Manly Seagulls or go put them in a netball or a cricket franchise, do that for three months and they can see how cutthroat it is. They can see what it's like to talk about pressure. Some of the corporates, when we give them a sporting experience, they go, oh my God, I'm full of shit when I talk about high pressure, high stakes and you go and see cutthroat world of sport. Then we'll take them to the military, okay? With all your contacts, (laughs) we'll go get them to jump out of planes, We'll give them a Hewitt. But I, I love what you said there as well about in the military. And this is something that I've learned as well. It's not me, it's we. So it's high yeah. performing in a team environment. And when you say to to your you know, Matt and your buddies you hang out with on a weekend, and, and you said before we recorded that uh, you know they've embraced you in that world. So when we catch up, I've, I've got to get you on for another podcast. I think we'll go deep on sleep and the great research you're doing there. I want to see whether you've got a shaved head to see whether you're really fitting into that world. <laughs> I think it's got wonky bumps on it from um, childhood. <laughs> I've got wonky bumps, so I've got no option. But that, that'll be the third block, right? So we'll get them then in that military environment. And when you talk to some of your military friends, as I do about psychological safety, they just look at me like I'm an idiot. They're like, well, duh, we don't need the research. And it's nice to have it. And I know you've been doing some great work with the founder of the research on psychological safety, which we'll pick up another day. Uh, but they just get that. And then then we'll get them to go and work at a high-level corporate environment. I reckon that 12-month program, charge them yes. a fortune. You'd have <laughs> yeah. a super performer, wouldn't you, if you really could or, do that? That either be broken or, or amazing. Ah, <laughs> uh, so talk to me about that broken. Do you think you really do think it would break some people? Oh, for sure, yeah, particularly the military, yeah. Honestly, because um, I think a lot of people don't know how to fail and they think, oh, it's, if they fail in one thing, it's a global failure and then they prefer to do nothing than to fail. Hmm. One bit of research I want to – the one bit of research we did on you I want to cover is imposter syndrome. I found mm. it fascinating. I love that you are open to it, but talk to me about that. So when you started working with the Australian swimming team, you had imposter syndrome. How, how did that show up and how did you get through that? Well, I think that I wasn't really – I didn't come through, you know, exercise physiology or a sports psychology. Like sport was not my field, but I just seemed to have a lot of stuff that they really wanted to know about. And so there, oftentimes I was like – I don't know if I should really be here. Um, and I, you know, I've always been like somewhat self-deprecating and I think it's a good thing, you know, when you look back. But I was like, I don't know. I just feel like um, someone's going to find out one day and knock on my door and say, hey, you, out, <laughs> this person should be here. And then when you delve into it, like all the high performers I work with are riddled with um, imposter syndrome. And it's actually what makes them good. It's a double-edged sword. It's what makes them get up in the morning, makes them train harder. What what's makes them, you know, go through pain for longer and harder than anyone else because of that small little person inside them saying, hey, you're not good enough. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a massive driver. And for me, I still, I still feel it. Like the other day I was thinking, what if someone comes and takes away my PhD? 
that could happen. <laughs> it's like, That's pretty drastic no for that to happen. And so I'm, I'm, I'm now engaged in a um, US company and we're uh, producing a documentary on my work. And this is like killing me with the imposter syndrome. Like, I'm like, who me? I just like, why would you have me on this show? Like, I don't Ooh, know anything. I can't wait yeah. to see that. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, next, we'll talk about that coming up. Hey, I, I have imposter syndrome every time I start with a new team. And I, I just yeah. know now that it's going to show up. And like, like interesting, you said it's good. I think it gets rid of ego, it gets rid of hubris. But balancing it right, because a lot of people listening to this may not know how to balance it. And they're always, you, you talk about energy and you can drain or you can leak oh, so much energy so if you don't know how to manage that imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you acknowledge it. And then I often say, like, is this true? Where is it coming from? What does it remind you of? Is this something and try and identify the first time we felt like this as a kid? And then just say, look, you've just, you've, you're in this, your brain's in a state of stasis where, like, you haven't emotionally developed from that scar. Um, because it's been too painful to 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 really dissect. So you know, with my work with with high performers, I do a lot of like going back and and un, um, unraveling that that first moment or those first series of moments that really entrenched that feeling of being not good enough. And then once you once you talk at, talk it out and shine a light on it, I think it can dissipate. You know, with it with the right rail um, guards around you, um, you can still keep that drive without feeling the pain. And the negative parts of um, imposter syndrome, which stops you from doing big things. I mean, if you've got imposter syndrome plus bravery, that's an awesome combination. It's imposter syndrome plus being immobilized or shying away from the hard things. That's not good. Imposter syndrome plus anxiety or even a low level undiagnosed anxiety that can really spiral down. Yeah, absolutely. It's fear of future. And how do you instill bravery? And this is what we why stress inoculation is so important. You do little micro inoculations and then you build up the confidence. See, you can do it. See, you did it. There you go. Look, you've got evidence. You've got real data that you actually can do this. You are doing it. And so that's my formulaic approach to imposter syndrome. Gemma King, I'm going to give you 13 questions. Hit me with the first answer that comes to mind. Number one, what is your favourite movie? Oh, I, I I do not have one, and I, I I've been asked this before. I cannot distill my taste into one movie. Uh, one thing I don't do is watch a lot of um, TV. But if I do watch something, it's typically not um, it's nonfiction. I'll give you one. Police Academy Seven. Question number oh, two. No, don't watch it. I mean, the one I cried in the most was the was the Notebook set. So yeah. <laughs> what song do you know all of the lyrics to? Oh, um, hate or love it, Fifty Cent. Give me a verse. Oh no, I can't now because I've got into amygdala hijack. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fifty is there. He's got the top off. He's he was shredded, wasn't he? He was a he was oh, a weapon. Yeah. Three. What food can't you get enough of? Oh, Mexican. Real Mexican. I, I cook a lot. My kids and I would cook like every night. We were cooking different meals, like Thai, Vietnamese. Moroccan, Mexican. Yeah, I, I'm a, a massive foodie, massive, massive foodie. Question four, what book has had the biggest impact on your life? Again, oh, my God, I've had so many books. And I, there's not one. Um, again, nonfiction. I love Sapiens, Yuval. Yeah, Yuval. Yeah, he's um, deep, isn't he? You do the yeah. reading and that and go, this guy's so clever. That's probably the last one I've read that I've gone, oh, you've got to read this. But I've got I'm, – I'm a voracious reader. I've got like 10 audios going at the same time. So 
Yeah, I just, I, I, anything to do with psychophysiology, yeah. Okay. Question number five, what is your most meaningful possession? Well, this is really hard, but I would say, I don't know, it's not a possession, but it's my sanity and my sense of humour. Like if I didn't have those two things, I don't know where I'd be. Like, And my mother's always said, if, if you're not sane, you, you know, protect that it, like it's your life depends on it because I think it does so yeah I, I laugh at everything I've got like a ridiculous um childish sense of humor and and I'm pretty sane we've just changed these questions and Shannon I'm going to give a shout out to Shannon who's changed the questions for me because she said if you just ask someone normal formulaic questions they give you a black or white yes or no answer so Shannon you're going to love that we did not think that someone would say their favorite possession is their sanity or sense of humor I'd love that question number <laughs> six what keeps you up at night so my phone <laughs> Gemma King the woman who studies biopsychosocial yeah well I actually I I don't have like if I had issues with my mental health with my sleep I would cut my phone out straight away but I'm actually like I function really well on hardly any sleep and I'm pretty happy every day. And what I'm looking at on my phone is articles. So I'm constantly looking at neuroscience, news, psychology today. So I'm super obsessed with... You're paddling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super obsessed with um, American politics. So, yeah, I think that's probably my guilty pleasure. Do you have a little window, though? Do you turn it off 15, 20 minutes before you go to bed? Yeah, I've got a red light in my, in my room, um, which I put on. I got it off the internet. This is, you know, a red light that's got a, a bendy one. Um, I always say, say peep, my neighbours must be thinking, what is going on in my bedroom? Because it's like a bordello, you know, this red light emanating from behind my curtains. Um, so I think that really downregulates my circadian rhythm. And I, I, and I look at my phone on my side. I don't do that. Um, and so I know how I can look at my phone without, like, you know, biohacking my... Um, Okay, okay. you've got a bit of experience in this. We'll let you away with that one. Question number seven, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? Ooh, I used to do lots of Ashtanga yoga, but no. But what I do now is I wake up, if I'm in Brisbane, I wake up and I walk two kilometres to the cafe through green, beautiful area and then walk back. And then typically, like my, now, my exercise is lugging my suitcase on a plane. And I do this thing, I don't know if you've um, heard about the it's an Alia Crumb study around the housekeepers and about whether where they ask them how much exercise you're doing in a day. Yeah, and it was the they had a, a placebo effect, and they told one group that they're getting exercise, the other one not. Is that, is yeah, that the so? There, what they, so there was a whole lot of um, uh, women who cleaned hotel rooms, and they and they were like, "Oh, do you do exercise?" They're like, "No." And when they looked at their day, they're actually doing quite a lot of exercise, lugging vacuums, making beds, and so um, they said. Well, actually, to half of them, that's actually uh, more exercise than is recommended by the general surgeon. They're like, oh, really? So then they followed them over several weeks. And the ones that they told that their exercise they were doing was sufficient, they actually lost weight, had better um, job satisfaction, lower blood pressure, all these indicators. And they were like, what have you been doing? Sneaking off to the gym. They're like, no. Working. We just knew that that was good. So now I do that every time I'm carrying shopping bags in, washing in, suitcases. I'm very conscious saying this is exercise. This is, and that, and so, yeah, that's what I do. I, I, I go through, like, sometimes I go to the gym, I get super bored. Sometimes I'll swim, I get super bored. So, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> I dance around the house with my kids a lot, which is probably. Well, dancing's great. Question number eight, what is your favourite failure? 
Um, my favourite failure is probably my inability to, to finish lots of university courses. <laughs> maybe or maybe my marriage. <laughs> number nine, what do you do to recharge? Um, I get a massage religiously every week and um, laugh. And yeah, I, I do. I do make time to like to have funny conversations and laugh and just really get that oxytocin. I'm curious on this next one, question number 10. What do you do to prepare for key performance moments? So a big presentation, you're going on live TV, a moment that really matters. What do you do before that to make sure you're in the sweet spot, in the zone? Well, so the night before I don't drink alcohol, I don't have any food that's got MSG in it because MSG just ruins my sleep. You get Because it's a um, neurotransmitter glutamate, you get this, I get this hyper nightmares, like hyper levels of REM sleep and no slow wave sleep. So I'm really careful about what I eat and hydrate. Then I make sure I know the first three minutes off my heart and then the rest I just know will come. So that's where if you do go into amygdala hijack, your muscle memory kicks in and you just go into like autopilot. I um, I do resonant breathing before. If I get really nervous, I'll like vagus nerve reset, which is something um, some research I'm in, um, involved in at the moment about uh, validating that for the military. I, I try and change my mindset and say, I've got stuff that I know they need to know more than like worried about social evaluation or what do they think of me? They're going to think I'm stupid. I really try and like narrow in and go, these people really need to know this. Like, and I put myself in the teacher's mindset that I'm teaching and helping them. So that act of service really does drop your cortisol and your cortisol is, is a thing that can make your brain go offline. I you know, try and laugh. I make sure that um, I'm wearing something like like good. When you've got good clothes on, you feel good. I always wear high heels. When I was I'm just say, I, I've always noticed when we've done the work together, you've always got the big wheels, like the big high heels. Yeah, yeah. It's just something about that it just makes me feel prepared. Yeah. I might try wearing high heels, Wiz. I'll see if that gets me more prepared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Question 11, what is your number one productivity tip? Yeah, so understanding physiology for a start, like look at what, um, you know, I think proteins um, in the morning is really good to like set your anxiety levels down because you're from a primitive perspective, like your brain will be always be searching for sufficient protein through the day. And once you, if you satisfy and hit your protein rail in the morning, you can kind of like your brain settles down and gets on to other things. Be really cognizant of where your blood sugar levels at. Um, it really does change your decision-making process. So, you know, if you get a fluctuation in blood sugar, your delay discounting will change. So that means if someone to say, okay, do you want 50 bucks now or do you want 100 bucks next week? When your blood sugar's had a and down, you'll go for the 50 bucks. So I'm really careful about where my physiology is in that moment. Have I slept? I'm also really um, careful about what I do pre something. Like I don't have an argument. I won't read an email that I know is going to upset me. I won't send that text. I won't engage in anything that's going to set my stress response system off before I have to do something. I also like, uh, like sit down and go, okay, what's my higher order purpose in this? What's my wife for doing this? And then chunk it down. So I don't go to the middle, like where it's like, oh, I've got so much I have to do. I'm like either big picture or small and or small chunks, and then tick off the chunks to get my dopamine. But I also like, as I said before, the teacher's mindset is super powerful in getting through arduous tasks or hard tasks. So if you're like, if you're doing some work and you're like, okay, I'm not just doing it. For myself but if i was to teach some, this thing tomorrow 
how would I teach it? And while you're doing your work, it just seems to pull energy out of the ether and it makes you remember stuff better and it makes you feel like you actually know that information. So, yeah, I, I, I really do the teacher's mindset and the service mindset. I really like the biological platform. I've asked this question with lots of times. We've never had anyone come back with a biological platform. So it's, 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 oh. it's, I love it. It's different. It's fresh. Yeah. It's, it's totally first. validated. Yeah. Totally yeah. validated. Also, if you're feeling unproductive, because um, procrastination is really one of the biggest things that people deal with. Um, procrastination is just avoidance of an unwanted emotion. So if you sit there and you find yourself like deep in YouTube before you know it or on your phone, you're like, well, what did I just think then? And you go back and you go, and it's typically like as a subconscious thought about I'm worried about what they're going to think about this work or my presentation or what I'm going to say. And then you go, okay, that's why I've just gone off into procrastination because I don't want to feel social evaluation or worried about being socially evaluated. So that's understanding the the mechanism that throws you into procrastination is a huge one. Question 12, who has been your most influential mentor? My mum. Yeah, she's- um. You light up when you say that. Yeah, gracious on every level. Really- um, Really, she, I mean, she was writing down affirmations in a, in a diary like way back before that was a thing. She used to go through the book of quotes and she'd write down all her favorite quotes. And then she got bone cancer. And then she's kind of like literally thought her way out of that, uh, that cancer episode. And she was just like, I'm healthy. I am strong. I am, my bones are knitting together. My, you know, she was just like really right in that whole psychophysiology, even before she knew it. So yeah, she's, yeah, wonderful woman. So gracious. Question number 13, Gemma King, what is your definition of high performance? Well, okay. Um, I think that anyone who's a high performer, they've worked out their formula for life. And, and in order to succeed, you need to know what does you, your physiology and your, your psychology need. So that means I need X amount of sleep. I need X amount of movement. I need X amount of social interaction. I need to be of service in this regard. I need this diet. I need to have these types of relationships. I need to be forever curious. I need to have a bend for mastery. Um, and then I think when you work out that life formula, and it's very specific to everybody, like you can do anything you want. And just really knowing what derails you, be aware of that and uh, and and know that before the, that, that moment of high stakes, that that critical moment. Um, and then have you know, the psychophysiological preparation in advance. But yeah, I think it's like, it's a formularic approach to success is I know I need to have a massage. I know I can't eat wheat. I know I can drink a little bit of alcohol, but not too much. I know I, I have to like move my body this much. I know I have to have this much socialization. I know I need to read this much. And I just know my formula. And anytime, and not at any one time are all those levers perfectly on 10, like one time I'll be drinking all weekend. So that week I'll really hack my gut biome deliberately because I know I've just smashed myself on the weekend um, or I'll get to a little Jeez, bit more. You've just got a lot of my country mates on, online going, oh, I love this woman. <laughs> <laughs> so I can smash it all weekend and then I've just got to do stuff to my gut biome, microbiome. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I know exactly what I have to do because I, I, I do have a lot of fun. I'd like We went to South by Southwest conference in Austin and like I was up till four every morning drinking margaritas like you know for a week so you know you've got to be able to have fun you just got to know how to like you know get yourself back on track afterwards 
I've thoroughly enjoyed today. I don't think I've ever finished a podcast and said, I thoroughly haven't enjoyed today, Gemma King. <laughs> of course. I, I, I've loved it. I've, That's what you say to all the girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I, I've appreciated your work for a number of years. I've had the opportunity to work with you at similar events. But today I feel like I've got to know you. The Russian experience, your mum and dad, the authenticity, the vulnerability, sharing from your marriage breakdown to some of the work with Matt. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you for turning up and being the full you. And it just is a great lesson to people listening to this, that authenticity around high performance is it's in all parts of your life. You don't just turn it on. Like you're normal as well. You're drinking margaritas at South by Southwest until 4 a.m. So you're having a life as well. So can I just say a wholehearted thank you for not just doing today, but for turning up and being real and for being you. Well, thank you so much for having me. No, and I really enjoyed this. I think that you're really good at what you do. You really make people feel comfortable. And I think you've got this amazing ability to, to draw out like the, the person inside. I think you make people feel safe and and you're just super inquisitive, which is, you know, it's a great combination. And you look super fit too. So you can you can tell that's your that's your jam. That's your, your happy place. Oh, it's all uh, cosmetically enhanced. None of it's natural. <laughs> you got a little puff like. <laughs> and so I've really enjoyed today and you know, I can't wait to, to hear this and I can't wait to see you again at the next gig, whatever it may be. And then we have to work on the, um, we'll, we'll do the reciprocity of the stress inoculation activities. For people who want to get more of you, to book you, to do research with you, all the wonderful different bits of consulting and coaching, where do people find you? Probably the best is um, LinkedIn, yeah, Gemma King PhD, or I've got a website, Biopsych Analytics. So yeah, but, but usually LinkedIn's probably the best way because then you can see all the stuff that I'm doing and I often post a lot of stuff on there. We'll put all that in the show notes and we'll definitely get you back. I want to talk about sleep and the research you're doing as well. So a couple of months, we'll, we'll get the band back together and we'll riff on all things sleep. Gemma King, thank you so That's much. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wizard, reflecting upon Gemma King, first of all, like, wow, I'm still catching up with some of those stories and anecdotes that she just flippantly went, yeah, blah, 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 this happened. It was like an action hero. Like, she's the action hero in this sequence and just talking about it, moving so fast, moving so quick. I learned so much about her in that interview. Yeah, I thought it was crazy. That whole first bit of the podcast where she's talking about living in Russia, it almost sounded a bit like a movie, like even when she was saying she was watching a coup happen, like the fall of the Soviet Union from her window. Yeah, bullets like, just hitting the White House. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was just a guy in the street shooting a tank at, you know, one of the largest buildings in, in, the, in the city. And I was like, that's insane. And she's so casual about it. I was like, so she had a lot of time to think about it and has sort of processed that and she doesn't find it as crazy anymore. Or was she always like that? And that's just how she is. And she you know, can deal with that stress because as she was saying, her upbringing and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's a combination of nature and nurture. It is the upbringing and that juxtaposition between a mother and her father and then being carefree maybe is not the right word, but wanting challenge, wanting to be stretched a little bit. Like who even puts their hand up and says, I want to be a stunt double while I'm in Russia? The three key learnings that came out for me around Gemma. Number one, she's so nonchalant. The kidnapping, like she just flippantly went, yeah, I got kidnapped. Whoa, 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 back this truck up. Let's talk about that. And terrible for that to happen to a woman, terrible for that to happen to anybody. But just the way she reframed that just showed that she was just, she's she's meant to teach resilience. She's just living it. She's breathing it. And when anything happens to her, this stress inoculation, she really puts that into the frameworks that she teaches others. 
second one for me, and I had this while I was interviewing her, but there's nothing that annoys me more with when I hear a podcaster interview someone. They go, oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, that's what I think. I felt that. I thought that multiple times. Did you think at any time when Gemma was saying she does this, she does that, that it's similar to the frameworks we use? Oh, yeah, for sure. It almost felt like I was reading part of your book. A lot of the time, I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Oh, yeah. I think I said at the start of the introduction that a friend at Combank said, yeah, we have Gemma. She is like a female but much better looking version of you. <laughs> and the more we spoke, I just thought there are so many parallels. Gemma calls it biopsychosocial, and I really love the intersection of those three different components. And, and I look back, I studied exercise physiology. That's about biology and physiology. I studied coaching psychology. That's the psycho. And then I've been working in high-performing teams for 20-plus years across sport, across corporate world, and now across military. So if I looked at explaining it in a really cool way, like Gemma King does, I also have a biopsychosocial thread through everything I do. So thank you for that, Gemma. And the third one... As a practitioner that delivers work similar to Gemma, there's just a real respect I have about the depth, about the rigour and the science that is behind it. She's got great storytelling, but there's a real rigour that underpins that. I learned a lot about Gemma in this. Mm. I, I mentioned in the podcast with I've worked with Gemma at conferences, multiple conferences. We'd see each other. It was always really nice, but we, we hadn't really got to know each other. I feel like we, and I think the audience, is really going to get to know Gemma from this podcast. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was thinking like the whole thing just kind of felt like an introduction to Gemma. You barely scratched the surface. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more episodes with Gemma in them, and uh, they're going to be very, very entertaining. I am looking forward to having Gemma back. We spoke about that off air to do another podcast on sleep and recovery. I was thinking about maybe getting into that in the podcast, but we just went so much detail and depth in other areas. Saving that for a separate podcast, that's going to be a cracker. Oh yeah, should be great. And I think one of the things I learned from it was there's a part that really just made me perk up when she was saying when she has a client that has maybe a bad habit and they don't want to get rid of it rather than trying to get them out of it finds ways to work around it so they can continue improving their performance and they still maybe have that you know she was saying some people don't want to give up alcohol some people you know like to stay up late at night and she'll find ways around that which i thought was fascinating because even in our programs you run a, a mini coaching session for some participants where you try and help people with their bad habits like poor sleep habits like they can't get off their phone before bed where Gemma was just like oh no i do it i just you know she finds ways to cope with that and to, to make up for that shortfall. So I, I thought that was really interesting. It's a really humane way of doing it. I, I watched you almost fall off your chair in excitement when she said, I can go out and drink margaritas until 4 a.m. and I know the hacks to get going the next day. Yeah, unfortunately she didn't elaborate on those, so I'll have to uh, keep digging. We'll pick up on that next time. Yeah, really looking forward to having her back on the show. I mean, she reminds me of, we had Kerwin Ray on the podcast uh, a while ago, and he's like a ball of energy that's about to explode. And she, she kind of reminded me of that, but she also, like Kerwin takes that energy and puts it into whenever she wants to focus on something she'll go she'll go hard and deep on it and then when she's done with it she'll she'll leave it by the wayside and then she'll move on to the next thing and I think that's that's interesting to see how that sort of carried her through her career to all these different places. Wiz, I never thought that you'd put a sentence together and say that you see some parallels with Dr. Gemma King and Kerwin Ray, but when you explain it, when you articulate it like that, I can also see the parallels between their energy, their intensity, and their absolute passion. That's it. Wrap up of this episode with Dr. Gemma King, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next episode of the Performance Intelligence Podcast.